This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Today's episode is brought to you by Empower. It doesn't matter how much money you have, we all have money questions. Empower is here to answer those questions so you don't have to worry. Take control of your financial future with a real-time dashboard and real live conversations to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know, wherever you get podcasts. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour, a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. Welcome to the New Yorker Radio Hour. I'm David Remnick. For years, many on the right have been lambasting a certain kind of progressive sensibility. Think about the ubiquity of political correctness in the 1990s, endless fodder for Rush Limbaugh and talk radio. But the furor over PC was nothing compared to the political battle over woke. You know what woke means? It means you're a loser. Everything woke. Everything woke. It's true. Everything woke turns to shit, okay? It's true. true. There's Donald Trump in 2021, and the next year, Ron DeSantis signed into law a controversial Stop Woke Act in the state of Florida. It was absolutely the centerpiece of his recent re-election victory speech. We fight the woke in the legislature. We fight the woke in the schools. We fight the woke in the corporations. We will never, ever surrender to the woke mob. Florida is where woke goes to die. In Washington, in the House of Representatives, there's talk of forming an anti-woke caucus. Where do you start on an anti-woke caucus? Most Republicans are now awakened to this fact that wokeness is weakness. It's a cancer that's eating America from inside out. You look at the recruiting numbers in, our, in the United States yep. military way off of its goals because... For conservatives now, wokeness is the root cause of everything negative, from lower military recruitment to deadly mass shootings, as one senator insisted after the shooting in Uvalde, Texas. But what does woke actually mean? We asked a few people. So my initial thoughts on the word woke were uh, really benign. They were words of warning to be aware of your surroundings. Uh, I've always thought it sounded a little silly. Uh, I mean, even when it first popped up, just the word, you know, it still implies that everybody else is, is asleep and everybody else is a problem, but I'm not. I like the woke concept because I feel like um, more people should be aware of their surroundings and what's going on in their community and I feel there's a reason why things are the way they are. Um, I couldn't tell you when I first heard it, but the context was always with Black people. Black people were the only ones that were using the word woke 
or um, making any reference to staying woke. Always black people. And then I had a, a co-worker who would sing Stay Woke. To be honest, any associations I have with what it meant pre, I don't know, 2020 have been like totally supplanted by like the fact that it's a polemic now. So when I hear it, it I just access like what's been taken and I don't really access like what the source of the word was. It's always with like a sardonic tone. It's always like with air quotes. It's often like people who like people in my milieu who still kind of associate themselves with like progressivism, but are using the term like in this weird way that feels like they've also absorbed what like the right in America have co-opted, like have co-opted it to be like they now that's their primary frame of reference. Wokeness calls out to people who are skeptics and cynical that, yeah, everything's effed up, and this is a problem, and that's a problem, and that person's a problem, and you think like that, and that's a problem, and every white person is racist, and we need to cancel all this stuff. It it gave power to people who, to me, just had a lot of negativity to spew. I have I currently have a very good friend who is white, who every time I talk to him complains about how woke his workplace is. He works at the Navy. The United States Navy. Which is to say, you can see what somebody's so upset about because it's like, what, what are you complaining? What is the issue? To get a deeper insight on how such an ambiguous term became so powerful in this country and well beyond, I spoke with Tony Thorne. He's a linguist and a lexicographer based in the UK. And he wrote the Dictionary of Contemporary Slang. Slang is definitely his thing. Technically, this language is quite sophisticated. It uses metaphors, metonymy, synecdoche, rhetoric, um, sound symbolism. It's, it's technically quite sophisticated. Even if it's, even if it's non-standard language that many people see as deficient or incorrect slang, it's, it's an important part of society, whether you like it or not. Tony, when did you start hearing or becoming aware of the word that is now ubiquitous, woke? I came across um, woke, I think, around at the time of Black Lives Matter, when that movement and that that phenomenon uh, started to trend. So probably um, around 2014. So I'm, and the word, of course, had been around for much longer, but that's when it started trending on social media and in discussions of politics and culture. My understanding of the word is that it's been around for a very long time, particularly in the black community, particularly in the United States. It's actually probably goes right back to the 19th century because woke is, it's, um, it's a non-standard, therefore not, not really correct um, form of the, of the verb to wake or awaken. And it's a non-standard past participle. So instead of saying, I was woken up or I was awakened, uh, not just black people or people of color, but also I think southern white speakers in the southern states of the U.S. would have said this. I got woke. I was woke. 
Um, so it's a dialect. It's a kind of informal dialect term, but it was very much part of African-American vernacular English. And when does it, when does it take on its political sense of awareness? Uh, I think in conversation, it probably happened in the 60s, but the, the earliest, the earliest um, record we can find of it, I think I'm right, was in 1971, there was a, a play produced in the US by someone called Barry Beckham um, called Garvey Lives, uh, talking about Marcus Garvey, the sort of um, black liberationist. And uh, in this in this play, they repeated the phrase, Mr. Garvey says, I must stay woke, I must be woke. So that was 1971. The word still didn't become common, wasn't used by, by many people publicly, I think, until 2008, when a singer called Erica Badu produced a song called Master Teacher. And she also, it, it's part of that song, uh, a kind of chorus used the word stay woke. I must stay woke or you must stay woke. So it was 2008 that it kind of... Um, transferred into popular culture, I think, uh, in the US, not in the UK. We didn't hear about it until Black Lives Matter popularized. The references to woke before 2016, 17, 18 were kind of uh, sort of straightforward. It means socially aware. It means empathetic. Afterwards, the definitions changed to it means self-righteous. It means pretending to be social, socially aware. So the, the term has already become twisted, if you like, and become, become difficult to use. Then the right, the conservative right, seizes hold of this word in order to jeer at what they see as the self-righteous left. Okay, one House lawmaker taking on a new battle to combat wokeness across the country, which he calls the greatest domestic threat facing America. I think he's right. Now when I pick up the right-wing press, I see Fox News, I see the Daily Mail in Britain. Oh, yes. Woke is the center of the, of the right-wing platform, not any particular fiscal policy. It's, when I hear Ron DeSantis, it's all about we are the, we are the center of the anti-woke movement. That's what that that's what the rhetoric of the campaign is, because it seems to connect more easily than complicated policy prescriptions about foreign policy or domestic policy. Am I right? I think you're absolutely right, linguistically. I think woke is a very interesting term right now, because I think that it's an unusable word, although it is used all the time, because it doesn't actually mean anything. Rather like, I think, in the U.S., Antifa has come, perhaps it did mean something, perhaps it did describe an actual grouping, um, but it's, it's come to be a sort of shorthand for everybody we disagree with. And I think woke has become a lazy slur. Are we fighting about language more than we did before? 
Yes. What has happened to public language, public discourse, the language used in the media at least, and on social media, which is the new phenomenon? What I think has happened in the last decades is this. If you want even even perhaps your opponents in the media to um, reproduce your message, you need to cultivate them. And you need to join in with them in the messaging procedure. And Bill Clinton, then emulated by Tony Blair, picked up spin and the, the notion of the spin doctors. But then what happened is this same process evolved and became more and more, if you like, divisive. So that then you have Steve Bannon advising Donald Trump um, and Shortly afterwards, the same thing happened. Bannon's playbook was picked up enthusiastically by Dominic Cummings, who played the same role for Boris Johnson. Only now it's different. It's not spin anymore. It's something far more aggressive. Bannon himself used terms like fire hosing, <laughs> like flooding the zone. And what he meant by that was overwhelming your opponents with a barrage of messages using very strong language, not simply to counter their arguments. It wasn't about just putting your own spin, um, your own bias on some piece of news. It was about destroying their credibility, denigrating them, and overwhelming them so that your opponents become unable to express themselves or even to unable, to unable to understand the public discourse. So if you see what I'm getting at, it's a process which, when we look back, is perhaps a coherent um, evolution of public language, political language, contentious language, but it has now reached the stage of divisiveness, what I call toxic terminology and weaponized words, which is far, far, far more aggressive and difficult to negotiate than it was 20 years ago. So you fully expect that woke will be the dominant term on the right as we head toward elections in 2024? It seems that the right, uh, I mean, if I look at it from their point of view, why should they let go of it? Why should they abandon it? Just because it's meaningless. <laughs> it, because it works. It's, it's, this is, this is exactly Steve Bannon's and, and Dominic Cummings. Dominic Cummings won Brexit with this tactic, with this playbook. Don't argue with them. Don't counter their arguments. Don't present facts. Just demolish them with whatever words you can find that work. And that's what woke is still working because for people in the UK, I think if you go into a bar or you've, you're talking to your neighbor across the garden fence, you'll hear a lot of ordinary people who may not be bigots or may be bigots, but who, who pick this term up and use it quite cheerfully. And the left can't do anything about it. The left can't stop them using it. Finally, are there any new words that you're hearing that we're not maybe as aware of um, that are joining woke as toxic terminology? There's a comical term that is used in the UK, which I don't think is ever used in the US, which is gammon. G-A-M-M-O-N. It's gammon is a kind of boiled ham that is a kind of, was a kind of proletariat meal um, that, that not very sophisticated people eat. 
And a gammon means a red-faced, angry, white, old bigot. The, the image they're trying to evoke is the boiling hot rage and the bright orange-red complexion of the this furious right-wing guy with no hair and a huge beer belly. And it, again, like woke, it's very useful shorthand because we don't have another word in the English language, in slang even, that, that covers all those connotations. White, angry, bigoted, right-wing, middle-aged or old. All of those features of that, simp- that word. So we had to invent one. And the left invented gammon, sometimes elaborated into gammonista. So the left, the left does it too. Tony Thorne, thank you so much. That was wonderful. Uh, It was a pleasure. I apologize if I became heated. (laughs) Tony Thorne is the author of the Dictionary of Contemporary Slang. And by the way, we published a profile last year of Ron DeSantis, which touched on his anti-woke crusade and a great deal more. That profile was by Dexter Filkins, and you can find it at newyorker.com. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour, with more to come. WNYC Studios is supported by Lincoln Financial. The questions around retirement have gotten... tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. This episode is brought to you by Empower. Can you retire early? Will there be enough money to leave an inheritance? Do you have savings for life's important milestones? If you have money questions, Empower has answers so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at Empower.com. Hi, I'm Roz Chast from The New Yorker. The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Life sustains itself by cell division. So does cancer. Breast cancer cells multiply faster because of CDK4-6 proteins. But what if we could block those proteins and stop runaway cell division? To that end, Dana-Farber laid the foundation for CDK4-6 inhibitors, drugs that are increasing the survival rate for many advanced breast cancers. Dana-Farber keeps finding new ways to outmaneuver cancer. Learn more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. Hilton Isles is a longtime staff writer for the magazine. 
and one of the best cultural critics working today. Recently, Hilton wrote about a new book called To the Realization of Perfect Helplessness. It's by the poet Robin Cost Lewis, and it was inspired by a collection of family photographs. It's a book, Hilton says, about how the dead do not stay dead. Robin Cost Lewis joined Hilton Alls on our program in 2016 after the release of her last poetry collection, her debut, Voyage of the Sable Venus, won the National Book Award for Poetry. Oh my God, this book is one of the high points of my life. I begged, I begged to review it. Thank you. And I said, she's going to win this award. Yeah, I'm glad everybody knew I didn't know. Voyage of the Sable Venus took its name from an 18th century engraving. Because there's a gorgeous black woman on a clamshell like Botticelli's Venus. And she's attended by all these classical figures. And it isn't until you really look at that you realize it's a pro-slavery image because Triton or Neptune is carrying, uh, instead of a trident, he's carrying a flag of the Union Jack. That got her interested in images of black women in Western art, a research project that got much bigger than she ever anticipated. It just spurred me on. I was like, well, wait a minute, damn it. Mm -hmm. If this title is so complicated and so rich, what are other titles doing? Mm -hmm. And that's, it just led me on this whole path. And I really thought at the time it was going to be a few pages long. And then every time... I would do research, it would just get darker and deeper and longer and more horrid. It just didn't stop. It didn't let up. The Western art project, as beautiful as it is, it also has such an ugly underside. Yes. For so many kinds of people. Well, it had to, it had to hack away at um, other things in order to stand on something, right? Right, right. So, you know, like for me, if I would go into a museum and see some kind of grand historical painting about some emperor doing something fabulous, Mm -hmm. conquering some (laughs) land, there might not have been a black woman in that painting, but the frame might have had black female bodies carved throughout it. Yes. In some kind of subservient position. Yes. Do you know? And we're not supposed to notice that frame. And we're not supposed to think about it, but yes. it's there. And that's what was so fascinating to me is that there are so many black women in exhibitions all over the world in every time period, in every country, every continent. It's everywhere. But you wouldn't think of it because who would think to look at the carving of a comb closely yes. or the face of a button yes. for an emperor? Why would, why, would, why would someone need to carve a black female body onto the button of an emperor. Why? Yes. yes. You know, and then when you start looking just for that, that's when it begins to kind of emerge. Yes. And and so I wouldn't have, I don't think I would have done, I don't think, I don't know that I would have seen that had my brain not slowed me down and made me look more slowly. Yes. Um, I know that you began writing poetry because of something that happened. Yeah. Do you talk, can you do, would you mind talking not about it? Not at all, it? not at all. I was in what they call a catastrophic accident. I fell through an open stairwell and I... What does that mean? There were no stairs? There was no rail. There was no rail. That I didn't know and it was a dark room and I was going to get my coat in a restaurant and they failed to tell me there was a hole in the middle of the floor and oh. I walked into air. Where was this? In San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Um, I was at a conference and I was just having dinner with a friend and I got cold and I asked for my coat. And they led me back to this room and said, it's over there. And I could see my coat. 
hanging on a wall, but I couldn't see the hole in the floor. Oh, my God. So I fell through. And um, for the last, I guess it's 16 years now, 16 years, I've been doing a lot of rehab and recovery. And um, somewhere— What was the effect of the falling? Well, oh, thank you. So I was diagnosed with permanent uh, mild to moderate brain damage, so a traumatic brain injury. And then I had all kinds of injuries all over my body. I still have so many surgeries to have that I'll be going into soon. Um, But the most um, kind of devastating part of it was the brain injury. Yes. And uh, at some point, I couldn't read or write, and I was very, they call it exquisite hypersensitivity. Everything triggered some kind of symptom, talking, walking, seeing, hearing, smelling, you name it, anything that had to do with the senses. would send me into a spiral where I would end up sleeping for days upon days. My memory, I I fought really hard for a year to teach myself the alphabet again. It took a year just to do that Mm. because the language center of my brain was badly damaged. Um, But, you know, I hate to be that person that is always looking for the green side of something. Mm -hmm. But it turned out to be, in many ways, a blessing in disguise. I call brain damage the... The, the gift that keeps on taking, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, and I don't think that I, I know, I joke with my friends that this book is actually about brain damage. Mm-hmm. I know I would not have written this book had I not um, had that accident. So partly because if I'm going to die, I can write whatever the hell I want. Exactly, you're free. I'm so free. Yes. And there's no one to care about much in terms of pleasing. Um, but also, the doctors told me I can only write one line a day, and I can only read one read one line a day, and that, of course, spiraled me into an incredible depression for several months. And then, at some point, you know how that grace, that voice of grace, just comes into your mind, and mm-hmm. this voice just said to me, "Okay, then it's going to be the best damn line I can think of." Mm-hmm. And so, every single day, I would spend in bed thinking of the best line. And I couldn't write because my hands were all in different Mm -hmm. casts and all kinds of splints. Um, Were you a mother when you had this accident? No, 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 no. no. They also told me I couldn't have a kid. (laughs) They told me I could never write again, teach again, read again, and not become a mother. And And you've done all those things. I've done all those things. You know, this is— I was annoyed. I was enraged. Yes. Um, There's nothing like being annoyed to get— Absolutely. The juice is going. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Tell me about your son, and how did that miracle occur to you? Oh, my God. What do you mean? How? Did... <laughs> well, I know how it happens. <laughs> but um, the decision to— There's a bird to... and there's a bee. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> there's a stork and a diaper. <laughs> exactly. But um, how, did, how did you decide to become a mother? This is such a great question. I have been haunted with being a mother all my life. Really? Yeah, I'm one of those crazy women who just— always wanted to be a mother. And when they told me I couldn't have kids, I really had to think about it. And I thought about it for like a decade. You know, what Mm. does it mean to be a disabled woman and to have a child and don't be selfish and mess with this kid's life if you can't really raise him or her well. And then one day I was walking down the street in Boston. I was doing major rehabilitation at the time. I was in occupational therapy, speech language therapy, just, you know, going outside would hurt. Mm -hmm. And one day I'd gone to do something and there was a woman, this gorgeous woman in a power wheelchair, Mm -hmm. wheeling down the street at what felt like to me 60 miles per hour with two of her kids on her lap. Wow. She was like high talented and they were having such a good time. 
And I was like, you idiot. If this woman can raise her kids, you can have a kid. And she was such my inspiration. And so then I was hellbent. And I tried and tried and tried for many, many years. And then it finally happened. Finally happened. And the deep irony for me is that my father was the first person to tell me way before my accident, I think you really should have a baby, Robin. You want to be a mother, you should just do it. My father was incredible. He was funny, too. I love him already. Oh, he was so good. Yes. And... um, and the deep irony is I found out after years of trying to get pregnant, I found out I was pregnant four days after my father's funeral. Oh, wow. Which felt so magical to me because I always told him, you know, you know, when you die, you better take me with you because yes. there's no reason I'm, I'm staying without you. Yes. And so the fact that I, when I found out I was pregnant, it felt like he stayed with me in some way. Um, how, does the, how does the accident impact you today? Well, I mean— I've grown comfortable with being brain damaged. Yes. I've, it's become familiar. You know that saying that human beings can get used to anything? Yeah. I got used to it. Um, you work around it. I work around it. I, I, I've learned how to take care of myself. Mm-hmm. I know when sometimes I was just at a party on Friday in Miami at the book fest and I was starting to get symptomatic and I was like, you should just go. Yes. You have a reading tomorrow and if you don't go and go to sleep, you know, by the morning, your You'll face be. will be numb. Your left arm will be numb. You won't be able to remember how to spell your name or that even where you are. Yes. So just go to bed. Okay. Um, it, 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 in those ways. But then also in, in, in lovely ways, you know, I still, um, I don't know, I still very much appreciate that my brain has become an odd little bedfellow uh, with yes, me. Yes, Like we love each other. Like I'm like, you're a freak brain. Yeah. And, and, and. <laughs> That's kind of sexy to me. Yeah. <laughs> I like that you see these things that other people aren't seeing. Yes. Um, but keep it to yourself, and we'll try to turn it into art at some yes. point. Yes, yes. Perspe- it, it changed your perspective profoundly. Absolutely. And I— How, Does it help you parent in a different way, do you think? Absolutely. It yes. helps me put it in fifth gear every day yes. from the gate. And, you know, I'm— I'm. You wake up with him, and it's like, look, we're here. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. And also, I mean, this is the macabre part. Like, supposedly, my brain won't last as long as most people's brains will last. I know that. And I think that's also why I push myself so hard to write. Yes. And there's a certain urgency. Like, I feel like I'm fighting the clock until my brain starts to rot. Yes. And, um, and so I try to— have a lot of fun. I try to parent him for the future. Like, mm-hmm. I've already, like, I have a whole library for him once I'm gone. I have friends sign books to him for the future because I know there's going to come a time where I won't be able to be, be present in yes. the same way yes. that I am now. So do, you t- just, do you talk to him about that? I do. I mean, I had to because because my my disability is in, is in, is invisible. Yes. And so the way I described it to him when he was younger I said it's like mommy's wheel, brain is in a wheelchair. You know, and sometimes you know, it's hard because you know, he's a gregarious preco- precocious fabulous child. And you know, he's about 8 now. He's 7, seven. and I have to tell him sometimes to be quiet. That's a drag. Yeah. It's just a drag. Or I can't, you know, I'm sad that he doesn't know the person before my accident because I was a huge audiophile. I mean, like, a music collection that's brilliant. And I can't listen to music and have people talking at the same time in a room unless it's a lot of people talking. So things like that, like I'm constantly, I feel like I'm constantly 
repressing his little spirit in ways oh, in, sweetie, order sweetie, in order to stay in order to stay asymptomatic and like take care of him or make yes, him dinner. Yes. So in those ways. But it's also okay because I feel like, you know, he's getting to learn about the ways in which bodies are different. And also the ways in which life curtails us. Absolutely. Poet Robin Cost Lewis. She spoke with the New Yorker's Hilton Owls in 2016. Her new book is to the realization of perfect helplessness. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. I want to thank you for joining us today. See you next time. The New Yorker Radio Hour is a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. Our theme music was composed and performed by Meryl Garbus of Tune Yards, with additional music by Louis Mitchell. This episode was produced by Max Balton, Rita Green, Adam Howard, Kalalia, David Krasnow, Jeffrey Masters, Louis Mitchell, and Ngofen Mpujabwele, with guidance from Emily Botin and assistance from Harrison Keithline and Meher Bhatia. And we had original music this week by Ngofen Mpujabwele. The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported in part by the Chirina Endowment Fund. 